Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Lisa. I'm so excited to introduce you to two of my new friends. They are co-hosts of a podcast. They actually birthed their podcast the same time that we did, July of 18, right? You got you guys just celebrated one year. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. We just did. We That's, did. Our babies are the same age. That's so cute. Twin podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these are the ladies of the Worker Being podcast, and I'm going to spell it for you. If you're looking for it, it's W-O-R-K-R. B-E-E-I-N-G, Worker Being Podcast. Um, so we have with us today Katina Sawyer and Patricia Gabreric. Welcome, ladies. Welcome, ladies. Hi. Thank you. We're so excited to be here. We are excited to have you. And so your podcast is not about nursing. It's not about emergency. Uh, your podcast is about well-being at work and all things work. Tell us a little bit about your, your mission and your podcast. Yeah, so we are a podcast that aims to spread the word about workplace wellness research. And uh, I know that Patricia and I both have been really passionate over the course of our careers about making sure that people are aware of the really good research that's out there on how to stay well and also perform well at work, uh, which can be difficult to do. And uh, I think that you know, our goal really is to make it fun and interesting, but also science-based so that we're giving you uh, suggestions that are most likely to work and generalize across different workplaces, like nursing, for example. And and we were talking earlier about how there is an abundance of well-being podcasts, but what sets yours apart and really elevates it to me is the fact that you do base it in research and in science. And for nurses, evidence-based practice is what we're looking for. We're looking for best practice, and um, and that's what you really bring and offer. Um, Patricia, will you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, your training? Sure. Yeah. So Katina and I actually met in graduate school. Um, we both have our degrees in industrial organizational psychology, which is IO psych, basically business psychology. So what we do, what we study as a field is how can we make workplaces more efficient, more effective? Um, so workplace wellness, how do you, you make sure your employees are happy and engaged and performing at their highest level while maintaining balance? Um, Katina does a lot of work in diversity and inclusion. So really kind of around everything around people in the workplace is where IO lives. Um, and so that's where we were trained. And then we both kind of split into two different arenas in terms of what we did with our careers. So I went into consulting and on the applied side. So I'm working with clients all the time and I have quite a few healthcare clients. Um, and then Katina went academic. So she's doing the research. She's kind of living and breathing the research and combined with our powers combined, we <laughs> like to take that research and put it in the applied space for our listeners to really understand what they can do to make um, workplaces more um, effective, but really healthier and and happier for the employees involved. This is a field of psychology, right? Correct. Yes. A new field of psychology? Yeah, but it's not that new, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been around since the late 1800s, actually. Oh, wow. Oh, started okay. in the military, 
assessing military ah. individuals and to figure out where they should go, what their job should be. Did you know that nursing also started in the military during war times? They needed well, somebody to clean up the sense. soldiers. Look at that. Yeah. We're more similar than different. <laughs> That's right. Aside from wartime being the time that we both were, our, both of our fields were created, why in the world are we having IO psychologists on our podcast? Uh, you might be asking. Uh, so I bumped into this term called emotional labor, and it's not something that I had ever heard before, but it's very prominent in your field. And I think it's something that nurses experience all the time. We just didn't have a name for it. Can you tell us why nurses need IO psychologists and what emotional labor means and what it could mean in, in the ER nurse's career? Yeah. So I think that, you know, IO psychologists, as as we were just mentioning, think about a lot of different kinds of work outcomes that people might experience on the job and try to sort of maximize people's ability to perform while minimizing the harm done to employees, society, communities, etc. So that sort of trade-off is what we're always trying to do. And certainly in professions where there's a lot of caring and compassion work being done, um, the toll that the work can take on you is different than maybe in other jobs. Um, and so from that perspective, this term emotional labor has something to do with or is uh, indicative of when you are acting in a way that does not align with the way that you are feeling inside. So if you're feeling very sad because something very upsetting is happening at work and you have to put on a happy face, that might be uh, one form of emotional labor. Faking it. Yes, basically. Uh, if, <laughs> yeah, if you're feeling really angry um, and, uh, you have to, you know, be really kind to somebody that might be another way that emotional labor comes out, or maybe you're having a great day, but you're witnessing something that's more serious or more upsetting. Uh, and you can't let the fact that you're feeling happy about something show because there's something going on around you. That's not as happy. So there are lots of different ways that people might have to suppress emotions and, uh, basically surface act, we call it showing a different kind of emotion on their face than the emotion that they're feeling inside. And those acts constitute emotional labor. And does too much of an investment in emotional labor cause problems? Is that why it's uh, studied so carefully? Yes. So it leads to burnout. You know, we talk about burnout a lot. I'm sure um, in the nursing field, people talk about burnout all the time because it's very likely to happen in very high stress jobs. Um, and emotional labor does lead to burnout. So if you're constantly having to fake your emotions, it's really hard for you to recover from that and you you burn out in the job. And so that's why it's been quite a focus. You know, a lot of the research happens in a variety of spaces. So in retail, um, in restaurants, and then obviously in healthcare, different places where you have to fake your emotions and the consequences can be pretty intense even for people that are just smiling at a coffee shop um, because it is going against what you are feeling. And a lot of times it has to do with um, what's going on around you too. So maybe you were happy and then your customer is really mean and then you have to still smile, but now you're mad because this customer was mean, right? And it could be happening obviously in the healthcare setting as well. You know, maybe you have a patient that's just really rude and you know like that you still should be kind and nice to them, but you're having to deal with somebody that's just being completely out of line. Um, and so when you're faking in a situation like that, you're much more likely to experience um, exhaustion and, and feelings of burnout uh, in the long term. 
is there a danger of people becoming desensitized uh, to actual emotional reactions if they spend so much time faking their emotions? I think that one of the things that we know from the emotional labor literature is that it continues to kind of compound the more that you do it. So the more that you have to do it, the more burnout you get. There are ways that people can habituate themselves to doing it, like cognitive strategies that you can come up with to help yourself get used to it. So for example, surface acting where your face is saying something different than how you feel can be kind of alleviated by changing the way that you think about the thing that you're acting about or by changing the way that you act. So in most jobs, you can't change the way that you act. So you can't just say, well, when I'm mad, I'm going to be mad. And when I'm sad, I'm going to be sad. And that's it. So most jobs require some level of emotional emotion management. But there are some ways like let's say you have the opportunity to step away from a situation and vent and show your emotions authentically. In those instances, you might be able to actually break and deal with the emotion in a way that is effective. In other situations, you might have to think, you know what, this patient is being really difficult right now, but my job is to make sure that they're feeling comfortable and maybe they're being difficult because they're really sick or because they got hurt or because they've been here for a long time and it's boring or whatever. Um, And so changing the way that you think about it, like it's not that this person is a bad person. I'm here to care for this person and connecting yourself to your broader purpose can help you change the way that you're interpreting the negativity that's coming from them, which then makes the acting seem less bad because it's more, it's more aligned with the way you're actually feeling. Yeah. And I actually um, have an example what to what Katina was saying in terms of the venting piece. So I have a healthcare client. Um, they're actually based out of Georgia. Um, Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. That's fantastic. Um, so they and I, we, I was out there interviewing um, ER nurses for um, developing competency models, right? And so I was there, and I was sitting in a room with a bunch of ER nurses, and they were telling me their stories of, um, you know, how what makes somebody a high performer, what makes someone a poor performer, and the things that help them be better performers. And one of the things that this specific um, client of mine did was they actually had a like a little closet room. That was like the vent space. So like if somebody's dealing with like a lot of emotion that they can't express in front of patients, they basically like bolt into that room. And then the rest of the team is taught that if you see someone go into that room, you go in there and you'd be their shoulder for a minute. And you can be in there to help them, you know, either just to be in ear and let them express the emotion that they're actually feeling. Um, you might be the person that can help them take some perspective. So kind of like what Katina was saying, then, you know, they're really upset because there's a really rude patient. And then you can say, well, remember that patient's been here for two weeks and trying to get them to think through some of those kind of deeper perspective taking um behavior so that you can get away from the very basic surface acting. Um, But that room was just kind of was their safe space. And they were all really excited about it because they had this opportunity to go somewhere and and vent the emotions that were happening to them at that time. Um, And it was cool because they actually trained everybody during um, like their onboarding. So when you first started at this hospital, you were taught, you know, about this room and what you can use it for and then how you can support other people. There are so many things that I love about that example. One of them is that the feelings are validated instead of, and and that you said it's a safe space. So it's a judgment-free zone. So I've, you know, I'm a good nurse. I love my job. I love taking care of people. And because I'm feeling really frustrated with someone who's being mean and nasty or a family who's being really demanding or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, it makes me feel like a bad nurse. But if I go in there and vent to to someone who understands that that's not what that means, that it means that I just need 
I just need to unload and vent and be validated for a minute in a judgment-free zone where someone won't think, wow, she is, she's not doing her job. She's not doing a great job. The, the other thing that I like about that is how they have formalized this space. Um, in my department, we make jokes about if the medroom walls could talk, the things that it would say, because the medroom is uh, in the middle of the department, conveniently located for multiple nurses stations to have access to it. It's got a code on the door. So the only people that can go in there are nurses uh, or people who are, you know, staff members. And, and it's a place where we go and we do exactly what you just described. Aside from getting meds, we, we do decompress there. We have to step away from patients where we know a family member can't bump into us. Um, that's where we go in an informal way. And then the third thing that I love about that is when we talk about burnout in emergency nursing and about this idea of emotional labor, many times when we hear interventions for that, when nurses are feeling burned out, all of the responsibility for coming out of that burnout is usually put on the nurse. So we talk about, you know, go on a vacation or take more breaks for coffee at work or step away for your lunch or try yoga, try meditation. All of those things are the responsibility of the nurse, which is fine. But what I like about this idea is that management is doing something proactive for the staff members. So, so it acknowledges that they understand that this is really tough and that, that you're always on, um, kind of on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was in the restaurant industry, it was the walk-in cooler. You would walk into the big walk-in refrigerator <laughs> and that's where you would, yeah. you, would, you would scream. You were angry at some white customer who was such a, like a, just a dick in a restaurant and you just walk into the walk-in. And literally, so you literally off. cooled <laughs> off in there. Yeah. You literally cooled <laughs> yeah. off. The angrier you were, the colder the room you went into. There was the walk-in refrigerator or the walk-in freezer. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the things that I think ER nurses have kind of a, um, a strike against us already when it comes to this emotional labor is that no one wants to be in the ER as a customer slash patient. You know, they're all coming there because they're miserable in some way. They're having an acute psychiatric exacerbation. They're injured. They're ill. Uh, no one is happy walking through the front doors of the ER, unlike a restaurant where someone might think, oh, I'm going to have a beautiful meal or, you know, the, the cell phone store, I'm going to get an upgrade on my phone. And then maybe things don't go as well as they plan. Nobody walks into the ER thinking this is going to be a great experience. Can't wait. Yeah. And I think uh, to your point before, I liked what you were talking about with regard to having some responsibility put on people who are managing or thinking about structurally changing the jobs. I mean, of course, it's important to do what you can. And I think that, you know, in our work, we always stress, you know, there are some things that you might not be able to change or that leadership might not be changing. And so some of those more individual level interventions that you mentioned can help in the meantime to help, you know, stave off some of the effects of more structural issues. But there are lots of things within organizations structurally that could be changed, not just with regard to providing a room like this, but also thinking about, okay, well, you can tell people to take breaks, but if you never give them a gap in their schedule to take that break, then telling them isn't really helpful because the structure doesn't support the behavior. Or you can, you know, tell people that they should take on, you know, yoga or meditation, but if they're working a ton of hours and they don't have time in any given day to get that done, then the job itself is making those suggestions really untenable. So I think it's kind of both, right? It's like, 
organizations, especially ones where people are doing a lot of care and compassion work, should be taking more responsibility for looking at how to make the structure of the jobs and the structures of the organizations as amenable as possible to supporting the well-being of the workers. And then on top of it, individuals could put on their own spin on what works for them to maintain well-being. But if the structure of the job is such that it makes it really difficult to maintain your well-being, then those suggestions kind of are, are throwaways a little bit. Oh, say it again. Say it louder. <laughs> I love it. So true. So true. I was just thinking about, as Katina was talking, um, that there's also, there's structural things. There's being able to give people time for breaks. There's, you know, maybe managing hours in a way where people can actually take advantage of some of the personal well-being things that they can be doing. But I think there's also something that we were talking about earlier um, around you know, you evaluating somebody and how sick they are, right? right? And then you're not evaluating necessarily like how challenging it's going to be from a emotional perspective. Like if it's a child that's, you know, near death, that's probably a different type of experience than an older individual. Like all those different things come into play. And the leaders that are on the shift at the time can try to think about how do we move people to different patients, to different rooms, to different areas, if possible, to try to spread out some of that emotional labor. So you're not, you know, the person that is dealing with all the most traumatic situations or maybe the most challenging families or maybe the meanest patients trying to kind of keep tabs on that so that the the nurses that are on shift together can kind of carry that burden in an equal way. So then somebody's not kind of in the in the worst possible situation and burning out faster or feeling worse and being more exhausted right away and then honestly performing worse right the more exhausted you are the worse your performance is going to be so it's for the organization's perspective it should also matter because you want your nurses to be performing at the best possible level so making sure that that emotional labor is a little bit more evenly distributed um, would allow the nurses to then be performing at a better level than if one of them was completely exhausted and unable to focus on the on the work your nurses are your best uh, tools. You have to allow them to stay sharp and you can't overwork them so that they can't perform their position anymore. But that doesn't sound like the most effective way of keeping uh, a good system running. Right. And when you're working somebody until they drop, that period of time leading up to the drop, they're actually performing much worse than they were right up front. So now you're not only having the turnover issue and trying to find new people, which is expensive, but you're having, you know, months of time where a person is actually performing at a much lower level and they're capable of. So you're really not helping yourself in any way by churning and burning people through a system. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so the rabbit hole that I was going to go down, I'm not even sure if it's connected to emotional labor, but I just want to hear your thoughts on it. So um, we're talking about jokingly about yoga and meditation. And I know from listening to your podcast that you both like yoga, at Lisa and I both love yoga. Um, I'm a horrible failed meditator. Terrible. <laughs> so bad at it. But I keep plugging away trying to make it work because so many high performing people just allowed all of its, you know, properties and qualities and how great it is and life-changing it is. So I keep plugging away three minutes at a time, trying to clear my mind and follow my thoughts and all that good stuff. But I think there might be something about the ER nurse's brain that makes that kind of thing hard to do. And one of the reasons why is Lisa and I proposed to our, our listeners, um, we were going to make a playlist, send us the songs that you listen to on the way to work uh, that get you pumped up for your shift. 
And um, we couldn't publish it because it was gangster rap and <laughs> 80s metal and punk rock and al- almost exclusively explicit lyrics. And it was exactly the opposite of any kind of Zen it, yoga. And It was the peak behind the curtain. We did not want any of our listeners to hear. <laughs> I just thought it was really interesting that they wanted it loud and crass and dirty and... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that says about uh, about the ER nurse's brain. But anyway. Well, I think that, I mean, interestingly, I think that a lot of what we're talking about with regard to emotional release may have to do with what you're talking about. Because, you know, it's really hard to quiet your mind when you have a lot of undealt with emotions or things that you've pushed aside or to sit with your thoughts if there's a lot of thoughts that you haven't really worked through. So in some ways, it could be a reflection of the fact that there's a lot pent up that people want to get out when they're on their way after a shift to sort of create that venting space for themselves in the car before and, and after when they're creating, you know, going back into their homes before they're, uh, you know, before they're with their families or whatnot after work is done or on their way in, uh, they know they're going to have to maybe hold in some emotions while they're there. So it may be that that emotional release and that like more intense kind of music is part of what's attractive about that. I have no idea. There's no research that I know of on that, but it does seem to me to go with it's go with that kind of theme that we've been talking about with regard to the, the undealt with emotions. Thank you, Katina. That was a beautiful segue. (laughs) You saved my rabbit hole. That was perfect. (laughs) She makes it sound so eloquent and fabulous. I know. I know. Um, Uh, My my soliloquy on uh, gangster rap. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I love that. But, and I was thinking, too, that one thing that we kind of fall into as a society is prescribing what wellness looks like and what a self-care look like. And it can be very different for different people. And so I don't think that meditation is the answer. It doesn't have to be the answer. I think it does help a lot of people. There's research to back it up. But if you're having a hard time with it, maybe there's something else you should be focusing on. There's research to back up a lot of different types of self-care. One thing I was thinking about that might be more relevant is instead of trying to quiet your thoughts and like, do and do that from a mindfulness perspective maybe you want to focus your thoughts on something so like there's a lot of gratitude interventions where you can think about what you're thankful for write down three things that happened that you're really thankful for that day and that's basically a type of meditation right but you're doing it a little bit differently and you're focusing on some a different way you could be writing it um so there's a little bit of active moment there instead of just sitting there so i think that there's a lot of different types of interventions that can help that don't necessarily have to be meditation and you know I think meditation is very hard and I have a very hard time with it too. Um, So it's okay if you need to shift your energy somewhere else. So basically, Nisa, a doctor of psychology, just told you that it's okay for you not to be able to meditate. I don't have to feel guilty for being a meditation <laughs> failure. I can do you, it my you own You can way. release that guilt. You, you can girls go are brilliant. You, guys, you girls are... This is really good. This is a good day. Set, send the check to her office uh, for that, that that little session We're that she gave you. We're allowing you to play gangster rap and <laughs> not meditate. You. Boom. Thank you. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. yeah. Uh-huh. Have it on record. That's right. That is right. Um, and when I was looking into emotional labor, not specific to ER, some of the things that I found, and you can tell me what um, – 
is that when people were, uh, if there were expectations of high levels of emotional labor in their jobs, uh, sometimes there was a financial aspect to it. So for instance, if you're good at managing emotional labor, you might get a really fat tip or mm -hmm. you might end up with a good commission because you've made a lot of sales because you're a good people person and you can do a lot of uh, either surface acting or deep acting, or maybe you get a bonus because you have more clients or more sales or more whatever. Um, none of those financial type incentives apply in the emergency nursing world. Um, does that help people with emotional labor or what? It, what does the research say about financial um, component? Does it, it, so in other words, if a nurse were maybe one of the highest paid in the, uh, in the, um, you know, say in the region or something like that, uh, does that help ease the pain of emotional labor? It's really uh, interesting that you bring that up. And actually the research would suggest probably not. Mm -hmm. So um, once you get to a point that you feel like your pay is enough to make you comfortable in life. Uh, so, you know, you can pay your bills and live reasonably. Um, and, you know, people don't actually like need to feel like they have tons and tons of money in the bank to be happy. After you get past that point, the characteristics of your job actually matter more than the amount of money that you make. So, um, and actually, this is a plot twist as well. <laughs> if you think about why you're doing the work as I'm doing this because I want to get a tip as opposed to trying to reframe it as, or because I, w because I'm getting paid a lot of money, I'm doing this as opposed to trying to do the other thing that uh, I had mentioned before, which is like, I'm doing this because this job connects me to a purpose that I really care about. And even though this customer may not be treating me so well right now, or this patient might be acting up or whatever, I'm here to make them feel comfortable. And the reason I care about that is because of this. And that's why I'm continuing to maintain professionalism or to be nice to this person. When you make that move, as opposed to the, I'm doing this, but I'm doing this and I don't like it, but at least I have a lot of money in the bank. It actually detracts from your wellness even more than if you didn't do anything at all, because you start to see the only reason you get up in the morning as money and when you substitute your purpose for money, you just get consistently less and less happy over time. So one thing that I did find in the evidence is that one of the most common complaints that patients and their families have about the emergency nurse or, or nursing in general is an uncaring attitude from staff. Uh, and then the other piece of the evidence uh, may not be surprising to you, but so we talked about the detriment that feeling burnout and and not being as compassionate can have on the caregiver themselves. Evidence actually shows that when you when the patient perceives that they're receiving empathy or compassion, they are more compliant with the treatment regimen. They experience less pain and anxiety, and they have a more favorable prognosis. I am blown away by that. But I think it makes some sense, right? Because, you know, when you think about just human relationships, so if we take it out of a work context, um, if you're being approached by somebody who has a lot of mental resources and emotional resources to give to you when you're coping with something that's probably taking a lot of mental and emotional resources as well, which may be one of the reasons why uh, ER nurses, people working in ERs, uh, deal with patients in uh, such a you know, compromising context frequently because everybody's dealing with a lot. You said, you know, I've, nobody shows up and is like, this is going to be a great day at the ER. Right. So when you're dealing with someone who has more mental and emotional resources to take 
to care for you in a way that helps to replenish your emotional and mental resources, then it's sort of generative. And a lot of these processes that we talk about uh, with regard to compassion or providing hope to another person or uh, the ability to uh, provide engagement, connection, uh, appreciation for somebody, all of those emotions are generative. Uh, the You give them to someone and they give something back to you and it causes you to pay it forward to someone else or back to them. And so they sort of uh, elicit a response. Uh, and that response is generally in the same direction as the response that you received. So when you're thinking about those interactions, I think it's it, it makes sense to me at least. I had not heard that data, but it makes sense to me at least that if someone's approaching you as a whole person, you're able to approach them as more of a whole person back, even if that's not how you were originally approaching the conversation. And I think that points okay. to a need. Uh, we talked already about leadership management stepping in here. You know, the nurses need to have their, their cups full, right? They need to be um, able to provide the emotional support to the patient that maybe is seeking that. Um, and if the evidence is showing that that helps that patient's outcomes, then obviously as, as a nurse, most nurses want to help their patients, right? So that is something that you want to do, but you can't do that if you're burnt out. You can't do that if you're, you know, experiencing emotional labor in a lot of negative places. So I think it's really critical for leadership to step in and create those safe spaces and create programs and things to help um, the nurses actually replenish their cup, refill it so that they can go back into the rooms with patients and, and provide the support that's needed. So we have talked a lot about interventions that individual clinicians, individual nurses, and also the management um, or the hospital, you know, the charge nurse, the department manager could do to manage emotional labor. Did we miss any? Are there any that you can think of that we would want to add to our toolkit? I think that generally the idea is that if you can't get out of faking your emotions, if you have to fake your emotions sometimes then finding ways to vent them to other people or to have those breaks where you can be authentic is helpful. If you don't have a way of doing that, then uh, as, as we had talked about before, changing the way you think about why and your purpose is, can be really important. And that's actually called deep acting. Now you're not acting out of alignment anymore. You're in alignment. So the more you can bring yourself into alignment, the better – and then sort of the third aspect that we didn't talk about, which is like, you know, you could be authentic. You could reframe the way that you're thinking about it so that the way you're acting actually becomes authentic. Or you could, uh, you know, do some tertiary things to sort of address the issues like you talked about, yoga, unwinding, taking breaks, etc. But those are sort of like the Band-Aid on the bigger problem. So uh, it's not that they don't help. It's just that if you can actually address the root cause, it's always more beneficial. Is there a role for feedback in mitigating emotional labor where um, if someone is telling you you're, you're doing a good job or you just rocked that really sick patient, you just turned them around, you did a good job, or you collaborated really well with the physician or... If you were to get some positive feedback on the, on a job well done, does that help? In general, feedback helps. Positive feedback helps a lot just in terms of like your job satisfaction and attitudes, which can decrease your burnout. It might not help the impact of the emotional labor, 
but it would, I think, help in general raise your satisfaction with the job because it helps to connect you to the broader reason for being there. And people like to be performing well. Like there, you know, there's a, a lot around people being happy because they're doing well. That's something that really does tie into um, people's emotions to the job is they want to feel productive. People want to feel like they're contributing. Um, and then, if, of course, if they have goals, if they have a purpose, then getting those things met is important to, to most individuals. So, yes, while it may not necessarily be like, okay, well, now you feel fine that this person was rude to you, you feel be- you might feel better because you're going to have some positive reaction to that feedback. So the more positive emotions you can have, positive emotion- emotions are related to wellness. Negative emotions obviously are not. So if you have those positive emotions, then you can start to increase your wellness and sort of mitigate some of the burnout, potential burnout effects. Um, and the more of those positive experiences you have in the workplace, then the and fewer of the negative experiences. Obviously, the more of the balance is positive, the better for you. So I think if you know you're able to provide feedback to team members or team you know team members can do it to each other. Of course, leaders, etc. Um, that's positive and encouraging. It's going to help mitigate burnout from a broader perspective, even if it doesn't necessarily reduce emotional labor per se. But it will um, it will help people feel just more positive in general. Good, good. Uh, it's one of the things that we promote on the podcast because emergency nurses don't get, we don't really get thank you notes from patients They're very much. They're kind of in and out. They don't remember us. They're at their worst, their, you know, their worst day, their worst moment. Uh, and those HCAP scores don't come to us. It's, you know, there's a long time delay. We don't really see them unless they happen to mention us by name. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of immediate feedback that we get unless, like you said, your leadership provides it or your coworkers provide it to one another. So that's something that we try to emphasize on the podcast a lot is that we, we have to build each other up because just because of the nature of what we do, um, the fast pace and the, and the nature of it. So I think in conclusion, I had one more thing that I wanted to ask you guys about. Um, And it's this idea that when you are in a a job that requires emotional labor, and we often hear the, the adage about the customer is always right, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes the customer is vastly in the wrong and they're just being rude, uh, mean, and nasty. And in, in the ER case, it might be because they're hurting. It might be because they can't breathe. It might be a family member who's scared. So there might be a reason that they're being mean and nasty, but mm-hmm. the customer is not always right. So what about the idea that management allows a nurse to safely take off that mask and express when a behavior is unacceptable? without having to fear for their job that's huge yeah if you can have that that makes a big difference so I mean the customer you're right customer is not always right it's a terrible Mm -hmm. adage um all it does is promote Mm -hmm. abuse Mm -hmm. from the customers right because the customer is always right then they can do whatever they want and most people are not monsters so they don't necessarily take advantage of that but there are those monsters out there that will take advantage um so being in a supportive environment is critical in these types of situations. And if a, a nurse is able to address it themselves or bring in um, a leader that can address it for them, 
but will actually have their back can make all the difference because it is going to be, it's very stressful when you're in a situation like that. Um, obviously the emotional labor is really going to weigh on you if you have to keep acting in a way that's not congruent to the way that you're feeling from the, the interaction um, and having support and knowing that it's not okay to be treated that way um, will make people just generally happier in their workplace. will feel more supported. The more supported you feel, the more, you know, you like your work environment and are able to then um, feel like you can decompress and that validation comes back into play here too. So it is huge if that is an environment that you're able to create where you're able to actually speak up and stand up for yourself when somebody is abusing you. You do not deserve to be abused just because a person is in pain or they feel entitled to something. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that, you know, organizations that have guidelines, I mean, obviously there's limits to it, right? Like if someone's just being grumpy to you, then, you know, maybe you have to deal with it because that's a situation that might crop up fairly frequently and it might not be, uh, you know, in a range of something that the company needs to take a stand on where, you know, you can sort of push back. But if you're being harassed or you're being treated, you know, extremely negatively or uncivilly like those are situations when companies that are quite good at this are actually taking a stand and saying no we're empowering our employees to uh, say you know that's not an appropriate way to treat you know a professional that's not the kind of behavior that we expect from our patients Um, and you know maybe I'm going to leave the room and come back in and we're going to start this interaction over again and I expect that you know that's not going to happen a second time or um, things like that so that uh, you know you feel like yeah, you, you have a hard job and you want to make patients happy, but you also, there's a limit to what you should be expected to take. And even from a legal perspective, um, companies are not supposed to allow customers to just harass employees without stepping in and doing something about it. Um, and employers can be held accountable for legal, for legally for harassing environments that are created by customers. So anyway, Um, yeah, I would say that, uh, there should be some guidelines around that. Uh, and that would be a great idea. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm so sorry that we can't see each other video, all of us, because I have been nodding along to everything you've been saying, like a front row church person. Like I am so in agreement with all of these things that you've said. (laughs) And I think these are fresh ideas that at least the emergency nurses in my realm will not have heard before in quite this way. Um, so I think this is going to be really, really great information to pass along to my tribe. So thank you so much, ladies, for for um, giving us your time and your, your expertise on this really important um, topic. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Of course. They're at Worker Being, and that's W-O-R-K-R-B-E-E-I-N-G, Worker Being. Where else can you be found on social media? So we're on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Very good. Um, Obviously, our website and then our podcast as well. Yes, check out the podcast. We expect all of our listeners to check out the podcast. You're going to see your numbers leap upwards. Uh, (laughs) It's like it's my Um, mom and Lisa's mom, so don't. don't. (laughs) Well, we'll welcome them. Perfect. Are you kidding? Well, our moms listen to ours too, so all the moms are welcome. That's right. (laughs) So thank you again. And for our listeners, please check us out at thekeywordpodcast.com or on Twitter at thekeywordpodcast. Nisa, what else? Uh, So we're going to link to um, their podcast as well as their very robust blog. And I will also have a bibliography with all this research on emotional labor. So check that out. Thanks so much. Everybody have a great night. Yay. That's a wrap. Uh, That's a wrap.
All right, can you see me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so in emergency nursing, uh, IO stands for interosseous, which means in the bone. And so normally we put, <laughs> and I happen to know from listening to you girls that you don't love needles. Oh, yes, <laughs> I do not. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the drill. I don't know if you can hear it. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, we can hear it. This is the gigantic needle that goes at the end of the drill. There's your fake bone. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and that's, wow. Yeah. So oh, I we got a whole dis- nurses means a whole different <laughs> a whole demonstration thing. here. <laughs> oh, 